Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. This is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, technology that's just right around the corner or or almost here. Uh, today my guest is Todd Harris, CEO of a credit union called TechCU, based out of uh, San Jose, California. They have about 10 branches in Silicon Valley, and uh, TechCU seems to be doing some very innovative stuff in the banking world. We're going to talk about what's going on with TechCU and how they're acting differently from traditional banks, and then we're going to talk about uh, blockchain technology and alt currencies like Bitcoin, and how that may be interfacing with the banking world. So welcome, Todd. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Rich. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it very much. Um, so let's, yeah, let's start with uh, TechCU. How did it start, and why is TechCU different from other credit unions out there and other traditional banks? That's a great question and one that we, we love to tell all the time when anybody asks us that. Um, the really interesting, unique thing about us is we came out of a company called Fairchild Semiconductor. And uh, anybody who knows uh, anything about some of the lore, the historical lore of Silicon Valley, knows that Fairchild Semiconductor was the company that created the first commercially viable silicon chip. And in fact, it goes beyond that. Their decision at Fairchild to use silicon as the semiconducting element instead of things like germanium, or my favorite is gallium arsenide, their decision to use silicon is why we are called Silicon Valley today. So, you know, we were formed back in 1960 by those very same employees that made the computer chip. They also made TechCU in a sense. And we like to think of them as kind of the original innovators of the Valley. So today we've grown to be a $2.2 billion full-service financial institution. We have all sorts of retail products, mortgages, auto loans, solar loans. We have a wealth management division as well as a commercial lending practice. So we are full-service. We're headquartered in Silicon Valley. And uh, when things like blockchain come along that are new developments, it almost seems like a natural fit for us being spawned from the original innovators of the Valley. We always take an interest in looking at these new technologies, these new developments, to see how they can help our members uh, in some way going forward in the future. Okay. What, what do you see as the state of current banking today? Um, it seems like in Europe and in some spots, uh, interest rates not only have gone to zero, but they've gone negative. Um, do you see that happening in the U.S.? And what do you see as changing in banking in the short term, in the next three to five years here? That's a great question. The, uh, the current state, state of banking, in the U.S. at least, is uh, I would still kind of classify that as somewhat under siege. We have all sorts of regulations coming down the pipe. Um, many are designed to, be, uh, to protect things that a few bad apples did out there in the economy, but it, it's a burden that we all have to bear now in terms of regulation. Um, the rate environment, of course, is very difficult. So, you know, margins are compressed, you know, very tightly. We'd love to be able to give our members higher deposit rates, but with the current rate environment, it's just hard to do that in managing it. Um, you mentioned negative interest rates. I don't see a plausible scenario right now that would necessarily lead to negative interest rates in the U.S. Um, I don't think you should never say never, but I see that scenario unlikely. 
In fact, it's probably most likely that we'll see the Fed raising rates sometime in December, I would guess, or at least they'd be holding fast. So I think rate cuts here domestically are probably off the table, at least in the foreseeable future. Um, mm. So we are doing – we are domestically, we're in a little bit better shape than Europe is right now, which is why you see such an influx of cash coming in the United States, which is also suppressing um, rates around here because there's so much demand for dollars. Okay. Um, and just briefly, between yourself and other credit unions, what are the unique things that TechCU does that other credit unions don't do? What makes you guys special? Well, a lot of it's in our name, you know, technology. We focus a lot on technology. We have one of the best, you know, mobile apps out there in the business. We have very strong online servicing um, or online banking services. And we uh, make our loan applications and our whole interface uh, as intuitive as possible. Not that we're perfect now because we always try to get better, so we believe in continuous improvement, which is really what mm -hmm. technology development is all about anyways, is starting and making it better as you go. But, you know, we just try to make our lending applications easy to use, give people instant decisions. Just whatever we can do to make banking more convenient by leveraging technology is the, th is the main thing that we focus on. But then we also have these 10 branches that members can come into and get that personalized service when they feel the need to do that. So all credit unions tend okay. to focus on that personalized service, and I think as credit unions we all do that really well. What sets us apart more is really the way that we're able to leverage technology, which is in part due to our roots at Fairchild, but also in part because of those roots at Fairchild, we have a membership demographic that really appreciates that technology and wants us to use it as much as we can for them. Okay. Um, last question in this vein. What what are the changes in banking behavior you've seen from customers? Are they going more to only online banking? Or are people still coming into branches? What things are you seeing that maybe most people won't know about that you're seeing because you're on the inside? You know, there definitely is a trend or an emphasis, um, demand driven by the members, not pushed by the institution, but demand driven by members, to uh, use technology, mobile apps, and online banking more. And I'd say in general there's kind of an influx towards something that I would generally call instant gratification. People want to be able to see their balances, make payments, do transactions, do transfers, get loans approved as quickly as possible. And that's really kind of regardless whether you're using mobile or coming into the branch. People still people want to be serviced as quickly as they possibly can and completely as they can. So I think so the lesson around this, and, and the fintech companies are kind of emphasizing this more, is if you can give someone a credit decision in five minutes as opposed to ten minutes, um, that's an advantage that the marketplace tends to be rewarding right now. So it's all about convenience, all about that instant gratification and, and quick time to respond. And I think it's going to continue to go that route. Okay. And then turning to blockchain, the most famous application of which is Bitcoin um, and other alt currencies, I would think that the banking world would be very resistant to even looking at it because it, it seems like it challenges their sovereignty over over the money system. What's your thought on it? Um, that, you know, we do spend an awful lot of time thinking about that. Um, I think on the surface it does look, it, it, well, it is a disruption point in fact, and on the surface it can look very threatening. But I think it also provides an opportunity for uh, more forward-thinking institutions to kind of embrace that type of change, embrace that type of disru disruption, 
and figure out a way of how you can use it to your memberships or your customers' advantage. I think, um, you know, this is kind of a, a tired analogy, but I think it's one that makes a lot of sense, and that if you go back and think about home entertainment, you had, say, what was a Blockbuster and Netflix, and then a technology advancement came along called streaming. Um, you know, the, the, the infrastructure was able to support the bandwidth that streaming required, and Netflix clearly saw the opportunity that streaming provided to their customer base. Blockbuster either didn't see the potential of it or thought that they had time to react to it. And we all know what happened. You know, Netflix okay. continued to go on and become stronger because they took advantage of that disruption to their business model. And I think blockchain is going to play out much the same way, although I think it will probably take slower It'll be a slower time frame just because of the complexity of the banking system and the regulations and all the institutions that are involved in the size of them. But I think it's a similar or a very related story in the sense that institutions that view blockchain as an opportunity are going to be the ones that are going to be around in 10 years. Um, the ones that don't okay. see it as an opportunity and resist it, they might still be around in 10 years, but they're going to be much more diminished relative to the other institutions that saw it as an opportunity. Do you think that it's going to take um, acceptance and use by the banking industry to, to give blockchain the wings it needs to really be omnipresent, or do you think that it could do it on its own outside of the current banking system? You know what, I, I, I'd have to be frank, and I say with my, my current assessment of the situation, I think there does need to be industry adoption of blockchain, and I think that would have to come by way of, say, the Federal Reserve Bank or other central banks around the, around the world. Uh, the reason I say that is um, blockchain, you know, provides a, a great way to do transactions. At this point, transactions is the main focus of blockchain, so it can help provide transactions, you know, very quickly, but that anonymity that is so attractive to a lot of people is also its weakness when viewed by a central bank or even a government. Um, if, if, you know, governments, they like to monitor commerce, they like to regulate trade, they like to levy taxes, um, they leverage the financial system increasingly to help them identify, track, and fight crime. Um, mm. You can't do that in an anonymous, anonymous environment. And my, my fear is that if blockchain gets too big and too, too widely spread adapted, you're going to see central banks like the Federal Reserve, you know, the EU Central Bank and other banks like that, they're going to join together and kind of clamp that down and, and, and stop that type of activity. So, it's a, so blockchain's greatest strength as it's currently um, being used in terms of cryptocurrencies is anonymity, um, which is great for a lot of people and people enjoy that. Um, I think that's its weakness. But you don't have to have anonymity to still get the benefits of the, the quick transaction times that blockchain can provide. So I think at some point you'll see central banks either jointly or separately come up with what I would call kind of a private network that allows their member institutions, you know, because we're a member of the Fed, all the big banks are members of the Fed, that would allow their right. member institutions to use the blockchain technology for transactions but they would have some sort of code key decryptor, so these anonymous IDs would be linked to something that would actually be identifiable so that the Fed and other governments can still get their, you know, BSA stuff done, their AML stuff done, and uh, allow the blockchain to benefit the consumer, but it will pierce that veil of anonymity for real widespread adoption. 
Yeah, the, you know, it's funny. The strange thing is money, I mean, cash naturally on its own seems to be really going away. I mean, I I feel bad. I, I rarely use cash myself. Everything's on the card. It's real easy. But money now is just what a computer or a series of computers says your balance is. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's it's actually moving towards what the idea of, of Bitcoin and blockchain is. It's it's a ledger. So. Yeah. And I'm not on the inside with banks, but I mean, isn't it? So, so blockchain is a public ledger kept on many, many computers that everyone can, can agree on. Current banking, I mean, it just seems like a series of ledgers that are held internally by banks, but there also has to be reporting to the Fed. I mean, what does it actually look like? What does money look like inside the banking world right now? How close is it actually to, like, to what blockchain would look like? Well, I think that that's a, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but that is a great observation. Uh, you know, money is, uh, you know, probably 95% of the time just, you know, ones and zeros stored in a computer telling you what you have and don't have, which is, you know, very similar, identical, in fact, I think, to your observation to what a Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies do. The main difference, though, is that the current banking system in its incarnation allows governments to do the things that governments like to do which is, you know, manage, you know, commerce and trade, levy taxes, and help them fight crime um, because the banking system is not anonymous. Cryptocurrencies, at least to date so far, are anonymous. And I think that's where the big rub is with this great advancement that we have in technology versus what the needs of not just our government, but many, most Western governments feel the need around the world to try to manage these systems and protect people from the type of crises that we just went through back in 0708. Yeah, why not? Why not have a blockchain that is created by the U.S. government that all the banks have to use, that is public, that is transparent, that is you know not anonymous? Why not do that? I think That's that exactly will be the key to success and the key to widespread adoption of blockchain. And you know, I, I can't tell you this firsthand. But I, I have great belief secondhand that I believe the Fed is very interested in the blockchain technology. Not Bitcoin, obviously, but the blockchain technology using the dollar or other sovereign currencies, but using that blockchain technology because they see the benefits that you and I see as well. You know, they see the fast transaction times. You know, the closest thing we're going to get to real time transactions is the thing that, that is what blockchain technology can present to us. The fact that um, it seems to be much more resistant to hacking than current tra payment transfer systems, so that will, one, protect customers, two, lower the cost of banking and facilitating transactions, which in turn will allow prices to come down, which the consumers benefit from again. You know, the Fed sees all of this stuff, and I think they, they view that as beneficial to the, the banking system in general, but it's just this, you know, anonymity nut that they have to crack. And you know how governments are. They move very slow. The banking system is very complex and uh, sometimes overly so complex and bureaucratic. And fitting this new flexible technology into that type of framework will take time. But I, I sincerely believe there's interest in that from the Fed's perspective. It's just a matter of how much time it's going to take them to move in that direction. And I don't have any information or insight on what their timeline is for doing that, although I do believe that they are very interested in this type of technology. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah, it seems like um, the idea of Bitcoin and blockchain is, is skipped over 
the notion of a of a nation that's it's trying to go global immediately with a global currency. And I guess what we're talking about is a step before that. Maybe because, you know we have a national we have the dollar, but having a national blockchain that runs, and then maybe countries will ha- each have their own national blockchain, and then maybe it'll merge by them interconnecting into a, a global one. Right. Eventually, but I think also what we're seeing is if you look at what's happening in the European Union, you know, they've tried that one currency experiment, and it, it's mm. running into some significant hurdles, and there's some very real questions about if the euro is actually going to survive. Because the one thing separate currencies allow sovereign nations to do is it gives them much more flexibility to manage their own economies. Part of the reason that they can't fix the Greece problem and then the Portugal problem um, in Europe is because they have that shared currency. If those countries had separate currencies, it would be much more easier for those sovereign governments to devalue those currencies and get things back in balance and bring their economies back more quickly. But since they all share the same currency, if you devalue the currency in Greece, you're also devaluing it in Germany, which only makes things worse for the EU. So I think the um, the whole uh, the whole unified currency is is an idea, but I don't think they've worked out the economics behind that in terms of trying you know, to make that work effectively, especially in times of long-standing economic stress like we're going through worldwide right now. What about uh, quantitative easing? You know. Aka the creation of money out of thin air. Yeah. Um, how do you? Blockchain seems to uh, push against that, especially with Bitcoin. If you have a finite amount of of coins that could ever be created, how do you think the Fed's perceiving that? Because it seems like one of its greatest tools, unfortunately, is you know printing money and increasing the supply dramatically. Right. So, what do you think is going to happen with those those two concepts? Um, you know, there's a, um, you know, block or Bitcoin, for example, is a finite resource. You know, I, I know that there's lots of, I guess there's lots of excess coins in reserve right now and it can keep growing. So, you know, I guess conceivably, um, if we're talking theoretically here, you could go through a quantitative easing process with that to a certain extent. Um, but the thing is with, with the Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, to my knowledge, there's not really a central authority in charge of that that would allow you to even do that mechanism. So you're right. Um, Cryptocurrencies as they currently stand um, would not support that type of an effort. And, you know, some would argue that 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 type of tool is still needed, which kind of then points us back to the fact that you have sovereign currencies but using the the blockchain technology, the blockchain blockchain platform, is really uh, the best way to go. If uh, not the best way to go, it's a good intermediate step before whatever comes after that. Yeah, and I guess just because things are on a blockchain doesn't mean you you can't increase the supply of available money out there, whatever form it takes. Yeah, yeah, the the currency would be the driving force in that, not necessarily the the technology underneath it. Okay. Yeah, you know, the re- it's funny as as we're talking about this, I'm sure in most of the public's mind. There's Bitcoin and that's it. And then some people see, okay, there's a thing called blockchain technology and then there's Bitcoin. The two aren't 100% the same. And now we've taken it at another level. And when you're talking about the Fed possibly adopting it, blockchain technology, again, it can still keep a lot of the elements it likes, you know, the ability to do quantitative easing, et cetera. But it keeps, you know, just one core element of what blockchain can do. 
Right. Yeah, I just find it very interesting. Yeah, no, there's um, potential in blockchain. And it, like we said before, you know, the institutions, and I'd even include the Federal Reserve in that, which they seem to be very interested in embracing this technology, you know, the institutions that embrace this, you know, have a way to make the life better for their customers, and ultimately better for their customers means better for them as well as an institution. What about other uses of the blockchain? Um, I've read a little bit about smart contracts. I mean, besides just keeping track of money, what else have you seen that blockchain could be capable of as it relates to banking? What else do you see that, that you could adopt, for instance, if you could, um, with loans and, and other products that, that would utilize blockchain? Yeah, that, that, that is an uh, enticing thought there. You know? So really, blockchain can be used for keeping records and, and transferring title of anything not just currencies. So, you know, the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, could actually adopt that for keeping records of car ownership and who's paying the registration fees on time. Um, you, know, the, you know, in terms of real estate, you know, transferring title of homes, that could all be done. Property tax tracking, that could be done. Um, thinking further out on the curve of how this can benefit, um, not be a threat to banks, but actually be a big benefit to banks is, I like to imagine a world where you actually have, say, a loan system or a general ledger system at your company that's based off of the blockchain technology. One thing that's really important to uh, credit unions and banks and other financial institutions that are federally regulated is there's a lot of emphasis placed on disaster recovery or business resumption if your business gets interrupted. So if there's a big mm. power outage in the grid or if there's a natural disaster like an earthquake or a hurricane, you know, it's really important to financial institutions to be able to get their systems and operations back up online as quickly as possible so they can continue to provide the benefits and the services and access to cash to uh, people that need it, you know, during those times. So if you had a loan system or a general ledger system that was based off of blockchain, the very nature of blockchain's distributed infrastructure would allow you to replicate your key data elements in many different places. And if your, your main headquarters went down, but you had a blockchain technology, you could very easily, instantaneously bring up that same information from a, from a different site. And something that institutions spend a lot of money on right now, basically right now I have to replicate my core systems two or three times to have that redundancy. And it gets very expensive because those things are, are those, very specialized, those servers are very expensive. But you have right. a blockchain server, you know, that's just all about data storage and the speed of your computer, which, you know, computing keeps getting faster, storage keeps getting cheaper, and the computing speed per, uh, you know, speed per price keeps getting better. So it's just a matter of time until you have the type of hardware that can very inexpensively allow credit unions and banks to do the type of business resumption functions that cost us a lot of money right now. So I, I see the ability of this blockchain technology, not only is it faster and quicker, and it seems to have the property that it's more difficult to hack than our current technologies, but it can also make you a very resilient organization in the face of natural disasters or power outages or something because of the distributed nature of the technology. You know, you talked a lot about speed of transaction, and it made me thinking about banking hours. Why is there still banking hours? Why is banking not 24-7? Um, and do you think blockchain will will help make it that way, or do you, is there some reason that it's it's still stuck in such an old paradigm? 
Yeah, no, that's a, um, you know, banking hours really, I think, only applies to the hours that you actually have people in the building. Uh, in terms of our ability to provide services, and I think this is true with most other institutions, is, you know, we are 24-7. You can use our online banking 24-7, our mobile app 24-7. You can write bills 24-7. Um, there's very few things now left in the banking system that actually requires you to call in and talk to a person live or come into a branch to do something in person to get that done. So I would argue that banking is not completely but very close to being 24-7. Um, when I talk about the speed of transactions and things like that for blockchain, right now if you do a wire, um, that can probably take you a couple of hours to get things done. If you do an ACH, it usually will post the next day, so it could be anywhere from 12 to 24 hours that an ACH posts. When you're talking blockchain, you're talking anywhere from you know five to 10 minutes, sometimes a little bit slower for you to initiate a transaction and the recipient to actually receive um, what you transfer to them at the end of that time. So again, blockchain really feeds into that whole phenomenon that we talked about in terms of instant gratification. In terms of doing banking services itself, you know, you can apply for a loan at 3 a.m. in the morning if you want, and, and at least we're open for business for you to do that. Yeah, but still, I mean, you know, with regular, I bank with, you know, the big banks. Um, wire cutoff is still 2 p.m. Eastern, I think it is. Um, you know, if you do a wire at midnight, it's not, nothing's going to happen until, quote-unquote, the next day. Uh, transfers don't happen until, quote-unquote, the next day. So it still seems like there is quite a bit of banking hours and, and times where you can't bank, you can't do much. You know, sure, I can take money from an ATM, I can pay for stuff 24-7, but there are a bunch of banking functions that still seem stuck, and I'm not sure why. And I wonder right, if this will yeah. be alleviated. Yeah, I, I see where you're going with that now. Yeah, that, that that is absolutely true. And that has to do with the Federal Reserve System that we're all members of, and that that's what we use to transfer money back and forth to each other. Because the Federal Reserve is kind of like the banker's bank, right? So mm -hmm. if you, let's say I want to transfer $5 to you, and I bank at TechCU, and you bank at, you know, Wells, B of A, Chase, you know, pick your big bank. I, first, I, I have to input that request into my system here, and then that request goes to the Federal Reserve, and then what the Federal Reserve does is it transfers $5 from TechCU to your bank's account, and then that goes to your bank, and then your bank has to go then transfer that money that they received from my institution to your account. And so, yeah, you have these 2 o'clock cutoff times, you have these 3 o'clock cutoff times, because it has to go through the existing system that we have. And, and I think you're absolutely right when if you had adopted a blockchain type of architecture, that would happen much more quickly. And rather than, you know, you know, sometimes up to 24 hours to get something transferred, you know, it would be a matter of probably less than 30 minutes to go through that same cycle that I just described. Yeah, that's, that's the idea I was trying to get out there is things will speed up, but why? But, okay, so it seems like because it will be a flattening of the necessary hoops that that uh, transactions have to go through to be consummated and be updated. Yeah, I mean, basically we're using the same system concept that was really created at the time the Federal Reserve was created. You know, I think we're approaching 100 years ago, or maybe 75 years ago. So, yeah, it, it's an antiquated structure that's in place that we're still trying to run on as institutions. So, yeah, that, that's the price we pay is that slowness. 
you know, blockchain okay. technology, um, when properly adopted by, by the Federal Reserve or other central banks, could greatly improve that speed. All right. And then question about uh, Bitcoin. Um, do you still think its reputation is tarnished to the point where it would never be touched by, you know, main banking by the Fed? Or do you think it's um, it's just what the public knows about most and blockchain is really what's going to rise above and come out of this and Bitcoin will fall by the wayside? Well, you know what? I think, you know, opinions are subject to change as time goes on. So I wouldn't want to speak to you in terms of absolutes. And I wouldn't necessarily say that, that Bitcoin's reputation is tarnished. I, I don't know if it's that point. But I do know that the powers that be, whether it be, you know, the Treasury Department or or central banks, you know, there is some concern about that anonymity. Um, I do believe there are some banks that have dabbled in Bitcoin. I remember reading some articles about that. Don't think there's a huge amount of traction because being federally regulated, the minute, you know, the regulators see that you're doing Bitcoin things, they come in there, you get a lot of scrutiny, and really some mm. of the things you may be trying to do, you get limited in just because of the whole, you know, know your customer requirements that we have now and, and the anti money laundering, you know, requirements we have to go through and the Bank Secrecy Act requirements that, you know, all institutions have. It just makes it that much more difficult to deal in cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin being the most popular one. People sometimes use Bitcoin interchangeably with cryptocurrency. You know, even those those other ones out there. So I think um, it's not necessarily tarnished, but you're not. I, I just given how I'm reading the regulatory and governmental environment now, I just don't see Bitcoin being allowed to get too widespread, because as soon as it becomes big enough to be a concern, that's when you're going to see a lot of regulation and legislation coming down around Bitcoin that will probably really hogtie it quite a bit compared to what we enjoy with it today. Mm, okay. All right, and then um, this has been a great discussion. I just have one more question. Um, if you were to take even a small piece of Bitcoin or the blockchain or any of the stuff we talked about, and that being the first thing that you see to start affecting the way you guys do business or banking in general, what do you think it would be? Maybe we've covered it already. I don't know. But is there any small element of it that you think will be the first por portion of the adoption of it? Um, a lot of this, I think, depends on how quickly, you know, central banks can move to do this type of a, a um, proprietary blockchain network for the financial system. But if they do that, you know, indications, I think, are certainly pointing to the payment space, whether that's person-to-person -person or replacing your bill pay functions that you currently have at your current financial institution. I think really the payment space, which is where, you know, Bitcoin was born, I think that's going to be where, where widespread adoption in the banking system that we know today, it'll take place in the payment space with blockchain. Okay, very good. And uh, last thing, is there anything I should have asked you that I left out that you want to speak to? No, I think uh, you, you asked all the questions I would ask. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. All right, well, you know, I want to thank you for coming and being on this podcast. And uh, I think we covered a lot of interesting information and raised a lot more questions than were answered, but that's that's a good thing. Questions are important. Well, yeah, so, that's um, a conversation. If you get more questions than answers, it was a productive conversation. Very good. All right, well, thanks for coming, and uh, take care, sir. Well, thank you very much. It was our pleasure. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, 
to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.